This is mosaic. Mosaic. This is mosaic. Mosaic. I want to play a piece of sound that has been rattling around in my head for years. Its origins are a mystery to me. I believe this is the best generation we have ever had. It is an inspiration to look into the eyes of young men and women who love the Lord, who want to do the right thing. They're clean, bright, able, and happy. Surely the Lord must love those of this choice generation of youth. I love them, and I want them to know that. For the uninitiated, this is a song from the Disney movie Hercules, with quotations from LDS prophets and apostles spliced in. To receive a body, we knew that we'd be tested here. Our determination was to live obediently, to be able to return to be with our Father forever. I have often dreamed of I'm pretty sure the first time I encountered this remix was about a decade ago in Recife, Pernambuco, Brazil. I was a Mormon missionary. It was an MP3 on a fifth generation iPod loaded mostly with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. When I hear this, my bodily response is a mixture of emotions. Part of me wants to cry from being genuinely moved. But it also makes me feel like I'm repressing a sneeze. I know every mile will be worth my while. I would go most anywhere to feel like I belong. Face your doubts and your fears with faith. The thing that I think makes this unsettling to listen to is that it's kind of perfect. The words and the music occupy the same emotional space in my brain. So when I hear it, both parts, the Disney part, the Mormon part, they feel like they're the same. Actually, when I was a child, I sometimes had trouble differentiating between Disney things and church things. Some of the songs sounded the same to me, and both were sometimes presented to me as cartoons. Through your faith, Defy, I will show you all things. Step by step, I'll climb the steepest mountain. On today's episode of Mosaic, Mormons plus Disney equals love. I'm Derek Clements. Mormonism and Disney is a marriage that makes perfect sense. Mormons love Disney. Take the two Utah women who were kicked out of Frozen on Ice a few years ago, for example. A spokesman for the arena defended the move, saying in a statement, their costumes and characters were so real that they disrupted the live performance due to the volume of other patrons seeking to take photographs. He added, it was unfortunate that they became too popular among the fans. We weren't doing anything disorderly. We were customers simply trying to enjoy a Disney show. Even fictional Mormons love Disney. Where did Elder Price dream of being called to serve his mission? Orlando! In 2017, Google released search data that showed that in the previous year, Utah, Idaho, and Wyoming, the 
three states in the U.S. with the most Mormons, Googled Beauty and the Beast at a higher rate than any other state in the nation. Just a few more Google searches, and you'll discover the rich history of Mormon singers covering Disney songs. Let it go, let it go. that last one isn't a cover. Sometimes Mormons are just part of Disney movies from the start. And then there's the little-known but robust subgenre in the Mormons singing Disney music that is the Mormon-themed Disney parody genre. The internet has a ton of videos of Mormons changing the words of Disney songs and making them about Mormon things. Elder, do you want to be a Mormon? And come to our church on Sunday. What would I give if I could flirt with the cute RM? The Mormons singing Disney parody songs genre is one that we'll come back to in a minute. By the way, Mormons are all over the place in the animation industry itself. Ed Catmull, the founder and president of Pixar, grew up Mormon, even served a mission. Don Bluth, who broke off from Disney and started making his own animated movies like An American Tale and Anastasia, also a Mormon. A couple of years ago, I spoke with someone at Disney about the Mormon-Disney connection. He produced the Pirates movies and the 2016 live-action version of The Jungle Book. And if you're wondering if he's Mormon, I'll just tell you his name. It's Brigham Taylor. It's good stock here, Lord about as fine a bunch of men and women as ever lived. All they need is a little bucking up and a kick in the right direction so so they'll know their own strength. And then you'll see how soon they'll stop all this infernal whining and all this talk about running off, quitting the church. Oh, you know, whoops, that was Dean Jagger playing Brigham Young in the 1940 Hollywood classic Brigham Young. That's the one where Vincent Price plays Joseph Smith. It's actually a really good movie. But... Brigham Taylor. Okay, here's what Brigham Taylor had to say. There seems to be an affinity with Disney. Well, everybody loves Disney, but it seems like a lot of LDS people love Disney and a lot of people in Utah love love Disney. Have you noticed that? What do you? Why, why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, I think it's apparent. Yeah, there's a focus on the family in both in both uh, groups. Yeah. And so there's an obvious overlap, and and so that all makes sense. And. Uh, and I remember coming up um, in the film group at uh, Disney Studios and learning from our head of distribution at the time that um, how much he loved the uh, the film goers out here because we always uh, our films always overperformed wildly huh. in Utah and so he knew exactly what theaters and what percentages to expect because it, we were always so well supported out here. The Mormon Disney connection goes back decades. In 1948. A Mormon media employee named Gordon B. Hinckley created a pair of films that described the church's welfare program. The films were produced by then-Disney employee Judge Whitaker. It was a plan of self-help, not charity, guided by men of vision and inspiration, keyed to the utilization of modern machines and methods. And one of the Disney animators, known as the original Nine Old Men, a group that basically invented the Disney animation style, was Eric Larson, born in 1905 in Cleveland, Utah. 
I also found this article from the church magazine The New Era, published in 1980, called Pam Carpenter, A Storybook Princess in a Fairyland Setting. It was the profile of a Mormon who worked as an ambassador at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. In this 1980 article, the writer, managing editor Brian K. Kelly, starts out this way. Pam Carpenter must be a storybook princess. She's pretty, petite, and always smiling. And in the article, Pam Carpenter is quoted, making a direct connection between Mormonism and Disney. Here's what she said. To me, there is a very specific tie-in between my job and the church. For Disney, I represent the clean, wholesome, all-American look. This is almost more of an attitude than a fashion style. You can't really look one way and feel the other way inside. Clean, wholesome goodness is something that will never go out of style. That is one of the reasons there are strict dress codes for all the employees here. We do not even allow men in the park without their shirts, and women have to be in modest clothing. I think all young Latter-day Saints ought to try and set this kind of an example. We should be on our toes and demonstrate by the way we look and act what the gospel can do for our lives. It just is not that much trouble to be well-groomed. Combing your hair, dressing cleanly and neatly, and being generally pleasant is the kind of example I think we all should set. What a powerful influence we would be on the world if all members of the church would be this way. And as long as I'm an ambassador here, it is expected that I be this kind of good example. Why else do Mormons love Disney? I can see a couple things going on. As a general rule, Mormons tend to avoid media that has explicit sex, violence, and bad language. And if it's going to have one of those things, we're usually okay with violence. But unlike other groups that avoid popular entertainment altogether, Mormons also love movies. We get FOMO when we don't get to participate in mainstream entertainment, which has led to a whole industry of Mormons editing Hollywood movies and reselling their quote-unquote clean versions. This industry is why the first time I watched Little Miss Sunshine, I didn't know that Steve Carell's character was gay. It's a business model that never dies. Whenever one movie editing company folds, usually under a cloud of legal scrutiny, another shady company pops up in its place, claiming to have a slightly different approach to editing movies. And Mormons love it, because we want to be part of the cultural conversation. And here's the thing about Disney movies, they don't need editing in the first place. And often, they're actually good movies. You're not only going to laugh a lot, but you're going to shed a few happy tears. Speaking of Mormons and Disney, this is just a tangent, but I actually think somebody should make a double biopic about Walt Disney and Mormon founder Joseph Smith. The two biographies are scarily parallel. Both men had visions of kingdoms where everybody is happy. Both men built thriving paradises out of swamps. Both men had dark sides to their charismatic personas. Blindfold somebody and drop them off at either Disneyland or the carefully coiffed grounds of a Mormon temple, and I bet it will take a second for them to tell which place you've dropped them off. As for me, I have to come clean. When it comes to the connection between Mormonism and Disney, I am not some objective observer. I myself am a Mormon who loves Disney. A couple years ago, I recorded this conversation with my friend Chris. He recalled the first time he saw me at church. Yeah, and you bore solemn and energetic testimony of the movie Frozen. <laughs> 
And you mentioned that you had seen it in theaters five times, like I think that week or that the past two weeks or something absurd like that. It was opening and weekend, my, actually. It was the Sunday of the opening weekend. <laughs> okay, so it was just a few days you had seen the film five times. Yeah. My computer hard drive is full of incriminating evidence of my Disney and Disney-adjacent obsession. There's the podcast I started eight years ago. Hey guys, uh, this is Derek. I am in my car right now. I just drove back uh, from campus where I was in my university library producing episode one of the Pixar podcast. There's a home movie of me as a 13-year-old driving around with my sister in Northern California looking for Pixar knowing I wouldn't be able to go inside, but just hoping to peer through the giant gates. We're looking for Emeryville. We'll make it to Pixar if it is the last thing we do. Weather outside, rainy. We are now parked in front of a gas station. Oh, we're moving, okay. Um, Pixar, here we come. And if you go back even further, you find this. In the next piece of sound you'll hear, I'm wearing a tuxedo and a top hat. Yes, my love of Disney and Disney-related things goes back to the very beginning. And with that, I guess I've stalled long enough. It's time that I got into the story of my BYU song. The year was 2005. I was a senior in high school in Stockton, California, ready to graduate in a few months, and I had only applied to one school. University. I dreamed of going to BYU because up until that point, my happy place had been monthly tri-stake Mormon youth dances, where I had a habit of frolicking around the gymnasium whenever a song from ABBA came on. At those dances, I just felt at home with my people. I imagined BYU as one giant tri-stake dance. I didn't know if I would get into BYU because my grades were just okay. But one day, a packet came in the mail with a letter informing me that I had been admitted for fall 2005 and a CD-ROM loaded with videos introducing me to the campus. I was filled with a joy that I couldn't describe. And because I couldn't describe my feelings, I did the only thing that made sense to express them. I rewrote the lyrics to Prince Ali from Aladdin. Within 48 hours of getting accepted to BYU, I had written the lyrics, prepared sheet music, recorded a video of myself playing the song on the piano and singing it, and spliced the video together with clips of BYU campus from the CD-ROM in the welcome packet. And I was pretty proud of this thing. I was pretty happy with how the song turned out. Hey, what's today? Is it deadline day? Oh no, gotta go log on right away, and I'll be the first on my block to click apply. Make way, here I come through the mail, let me thumb, hey, they sent me a good reply, BYU, here's my debut, isn't this lovely? Feared you'd reject, but that proved incorrect, so glad you want me. 
I tried my best to stay calm. But when I read the letter to my mom, I couldn't contain my excitement, no siree. BYU, what would I do had you rejected me? Probably scythe in BYU, Idaho it would be. Not to strike insulting chords. Fair potatoes could win some awards. But which university is truly the Lord's? It's plain to see. There was no YouTube in 2005, at least that I knew anything about. But I did burn the video onto DVDs, and I provided copies to close friends and family members. I sent a digital copy of the video to my uncle Matt, who worked at BYU, who forwarded it along to the Dean of Admissions, Ford Stevenson, who wrote my uncle back saying, Matt, thanks so much. What a great way to start the new week. We are happy to have such a talented young man join our student body. Ford, Brother Stevenson, the happiness was all mine. Cause my heart could go to nowhere but BYU. I've got 95 hairs on my face now. But from now on, I will make myself shave. I will follow the honor code starting now. Proud to do it, obey every rule while I'm at school. I'm just lousy with loyalty. That is true. BYU. Later that year, coming to BYU with the sheet music in hand to my BYU song made me feel like I had a secret weapon of coolness. I looked for every opportunity to share my skills of lyric writing and piano playing with anybody who might be interested. Fortunately for me, another thing Mormons love besides Disney is talent shows. So that first year at BYU, I had a lot of opportunities to perform my BYU song. Before this story takes the dark turn that it has inevitably been leading to, I want to remember how much people actually liked my song. In fact, I have video evidence of this fact. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. All right. <clears throat> like this footage of me decked from head to toe in my homemade Mr. Incredibles outfit in the common area at the Deseret Towers dormitory bobbing along to my own piano playing while I sat and performed the song again for a crowd of other BYU freshmen. That kid in the video really is me, even if he does have a full head of hair that he never ever thought would go away. And that crowd really was into my performance. I hope my roommate becomes my guitar. Like bears and lions, but cougars can grow. It's got hundreds of acres. Could you act like Quakers? But the fun will always And as they cheered, that really was a karate-style kick that I offered them, drinking in their acceptance of my creativity. But like a full head of teenaged curly hair, nothing lasts forever. After performing my song at countless BYU Ward talent shows, I finally started thinking bigger. I decided to put the song on YouTube. By now, some years had passed. When I came home from my two-year mission, there were all kinds of new technologies to learn about. YouTube, iPods with touch screens, Bluetooth headsets that made talking on the phone look like talking to yourself. Between 2006 and 2008, the world had changed. But my BYU song had not. And in the beginning of 2009, I uploaded the video of my song to YouTube. 
As I clicked send, I thought again about the crowd for whom I had once offered a victorious karate kick. I imagined the kind of praise I would now receive with the video potentially being seen by hundreds, maybe thousands of strangers. And it didn't take long for the comments to start flooding my email. Nasty. I consider myself very accepting of all ethnicities, genders, and orientations. I am a good Christian, and I have compassion in my heart for all walks of life, but I would bludgeon that kid's face in with a baseball bat if I had the chance. That is exactly why I hate BYU fans. This kid represents about 75% of them in my extensive experience. This is one of the reasons why people have negative thoughts about Mormons and BYU. Epic fail! This is so nerdy and cheesy. Ugh. People, not all people at BYU or that are Mormon are like this. I hate you. Don't ever modify another Disney song again, ever. Not exactly what I had expected. Even people from BYU-Idaho were complaining. Wow. I'm glad you feel BYUI is an overflow school. It's pricks like you that made me decide not to even apply to Provo. I couldn't believe the response. Hadn't I created a masterpiece? Hadn't the Dean of Admissions basically verified as much? I started to doubt myself a little. I mean, I guess I had been kind of pitchy, but I thought no one else had noticed that. Days passed, and comments continued pouring into my inbox. Most of them were negative. Virgin. And even the ones that were positive seemed kind of negative. This is awesome. The pianist may want to request that this be taken down, though, so he can show his face in public again. And then one comment surprised me. The person said they had found my video because of something called Petros and Money. I had no idea what it was, but I looked it up. And I found this. Live from the AutoZone studios on the home of Fox Sports Radio. From L.A. and O.C. for L.A. and O.C. Radio Salvation. We're on a mission from God. One day, One at, a day at a time. This is the Petros and Money Show. Featuring Petros Papadakis and Matt Money Smith. A sports talk radio show based in Los Angeles had found my song. And they were starting to incorporate it into their commentary about BYU. We are talking about BYU-Utah. Utah's the BCS buster. I like Utah. BYU, they have some good players. The game's in Rice-Eccles Stadium tomorrow. That is in Salt Lake City. That's the Utah play. So you like Utah in that game? Well, I'm going to show you why. Okay. It's because of this YouTube posting by some punk-ass Mormon kid about BYU. I dare say, Matt, this is better. Then Appy State is hot, hot, hot. Remember what? that song? Appalachian hot, hot, State. Hot, 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 yeah. hot, hot. I sang, it for, uh, I sang it for Coach Alvin Gentry last night, as a matter of fact, in the pregame show, because he's an Appy State guy. Did you really? Did yeah. he like it? Oh, he started laughing. I said, is that really your song? He said, you're damn right it is. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. He confirmed that even when he went there, that was the Appy State official university song. Now, I hope nobody's just tuning in as this is playing, because this is downright awful. This is some kind of latently gay high school kid who just got accepted to BYU. He'll never admit he's gay because he's Mormon. But he just got accepted to BYU. And he wrote this whole song entitled BYU. Tell me you're not rooting for the Utes to bust into the BCS and beat BYU's ass and win the Mountain West after you hear this. This kid, and it's to Prince Ali by... By the Aladdin people, oh. you know, from the Aladdin cartoon. Prince Listen Ali, to this kid. This kid singing about BYU and what a great Mormon he is. I All mean, right. it's infuriating. Ronnie, play the song. 
and lions, but cougars can growl. It's got hundreds of acres, kids who act like wakers, but the fun will always ensue. Make a way for BYU. Now, how would you like to be the poor Mormon girl that's got to marry that latently gay guy? You know what? He's, he's not going to find a Mormon girl to marry that latently gay guy. He's going to go on his mission and pluck someone out of, like, Ivory Coast or something. That's the way that kid's going to get it. How, I mean, can you imagine that? <laughs> no. We should no, play that I, I really every can't. day forever. I really can't. Every day forever. And at least for the next little while, they seem to keep that promise. And for the first time in my life, I became a devoted listener to a three-hour-a-day sports talk radio show. What does he say? What was the tattoo line? That was the best line. I don't have a tattoo and I don't plan to get one. I'll follow all the rules and be a good little boy. And there was the uh, the honor code <laughs> line as well. The, uh, I'll follow the honor code. $6,500 bonus cash on a Tahoe. $7,000 on Silverado. $2,500 on a Malibu. All at the Chevy Red yeah. Tag event. Yeah! Be a proud American and buy an American brand. I know you know what's happening with the economy right now. Can't stress enough for you to back your country. We're all in this together. Make a difference. Oh, come on. One thing that Petros and Money seemed to have in common with the YouTube commenters was an interest in my sexual orientation. I once saw two guys doing it, and it wasn't as gay as this. I respect your creativity, just don't share it with anyone. I think you just broke the honor code with your flamboyant performance. I thought BYU frowned upon homosexuality. Dot, 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 question mark. Hearing those comments a decade later, I didn't fully appreciate the nuance in them. They were homophobic, to be sure. They were essentially making fun of me by saying I looked or sounded gay. Gay folks were only half of the target of those jokes. They were also half making fun of BYU itself and the intolerant position toward homosexuality that Mormons were now, in 2009, growing to be more well-known for. Meanwhile, at the time, my best friend and roommate at BYU had just come out of the closet to me, and it had thrown my own identity into a crisis. Not about my sexual orientation, but my religious orientation. Everything I believed, everything BYU had represented to me, was now in question. The kid that once unironically and uncritically sang the praises of BYU had kicked his last karate kick into a crowd. My relationship with BYU and Mormonism was changing. My relationship with Disney was not. And that's what led me to my next move with Petros and Money. Maybe I could get something out of this situation. I decided to send an email out of the blue to the show. And then I tuned in the next day to listen. Now, you have something for the next segment, don't you? I don't. No, yeah, you do. Nothing. You sure? Not a thing. Why, you Greatest email ever. Greatest that's, email that's ever. Those that follow us on the Twitter page know where we're going with this. If you don't, number one, you should follow us. Petros and Money, no spaces. Number two, I do believe there will be an event that comes to the Petros and Money show I here. don't know because it, that, that, in you the know, next couple months. Just playing the song split the show, and now we're going to dig into the station budget. Dig in deep. 
We'll share right, the we email with you. We gotta discuss this coming up next. Dude's name is terrific, for God's sake. Well, it's not his real name. Oh, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it is. Oh my God. Like I mean, radical, really like this? radical at the office in his fancy Mazda race car. Terrific is gonna get some play here. This email came in last night last at. Night. Uh, let's see. I don't have the exact time when we got it. I replied to it at about midnight because I think I texted you. Right around there. Yeah, it was like yeah, it was late. It was it late was, in the game. It was the wee hours. So this comes from a gentleman by the name of Derek who calls yeah. himself Derrific. Yes, and See, we answer all emails personally. It's playing words there. Dare I get it. Yeah. Derek Derrific. Petros and money. So I see you found my song. Thanks to your show, that song got a lot of publicity. Exclamation point. No offense taken. Good. I was completely flattered by the attention. I put it up on YouTube originally because my BYU friends <gasps> wanted to access it. I have no idea how it got all the way to LA. I'm from California, but up north. Anyway, my offer is simple. I am more than happy to come on your show oh. and perform it Don't live. Don't shake your head fast. Say, listen, open your mind for God's sakes. Jeez. Send me to LA, get me a ticket to Disneyland, because you know I really like Disneyland, obviously. The theme of the song is is a parody yeah, of Aladdin. Aladdin. Yeah, we'll send him to Disneyland. Uh, I haven't send been. That kid to Disneyland. This is, you know, this is where we can come and provide a service. This young man, you know, put himself out there on the YouTube. I haven't been there since I was six, so you'd be fulfilling a dream I've had for a really long time. There you go. Get back there, so we help the kid out a little bit. How about say? How about opening up your heart a little bit? Yeah, I mean, what are you, Mussolini? Come on, man. Ah, and how about this? This is where things get really interesting. I might even write a song about you oh. to thank you. Oh, I can't stand up now. Oh, I'm so geeked up about it. Let me know that. if you're interested. Keep up the good work with the show. That's a lot of work you guys do. You That's seem right. to do it well. That's Thanks right, Derek. again, Derek. Now, for those that don't know. Oh, we have it? This is his BYU song. That we fell in love with. In sending that email, I figured maybe I could ride this fame train to Disneyland. Debasing myself before the lion's den of toxic masculinity would be a small price for a free trip to the happiest place on earth. Now, Ronnie, will you will you protest if we bring this kid in and try to have a live performance? Ronnie? Exactly. Silence. Wow. I am not talking to you guys. Oh, come on, Ronnie. I'm not Ronnie. talking to you. You know Ronnie. how I feel about it. Ronnie. Ronnie, I I'm know done. how you feel about it, but, but can't we open our heart to I a young man? I thought you were a music man, I Ronnie. will kick that kid square in the nuts. Oh! Oh! Whoa! Wow. That is just, that's over well, the line. Well, now we really got to fly. That is kid over out, the right? line. Just to, just to put it to Ronnie. What if Ronnie kicks a kid in the balls on the air? That would be awful. We'll probably have a bit of a problem. No, we'd be soon. So, as the days passed, our email relationship continued. Kid's name is Derek, and he's contacted seems like a us. Nice kid. He seems like a wonderful kid, and he wants to come out and perform for us if we fly him out, which we will. have the power well, to we'd do like, so. We'd like to. We'd but we like want, to. We want there to be great harmony. We want on everybody show. to be happy, but Ronnie is being completely and totally uncooperative. And Derek heard yesterday's show from BYU. Promo. And <laughs> emailed us at PMS at am570radio.com, where we, of course, answer all emails. Personally. Hey, PM, I heard Monday's show. Loved it. Couldn't believe it when you read my email on the air. Well, you won't be able to believe it when we read this. Did it again. <laughs> it's a regular part of the show, Derek. Now he's getting it going. I can already taste Disneyland's air in my mouth. Oh, yeah. And my dream's coming true. That delicious Anaheim air. I thought that maybe I could say something that would help Ronnie. See the light. Oh. So, Ronnie, he's going to address you right now. Directing Ronnie. Are you listening, Ronnie? I am open-minded. Okay, here he's, here, here, here's Derek. And remember, this kid doesn't have a mean bone in his body. He didn't even want to assault BYU-Idaho in his song, okay? Ronnie, 
It should go without saying, but I would love to reciprocate all that you have said by bringing you a special gift box of BYU stuff. How about that? Or at least a T-shirt or a hat or a plate or something. An official BYU T-shirt. How can you say no to that? Sincerely. Derek. Now, see, when you said I'd officially like to reciprocate all that you have offered, I thought he'd say, I'll come out and give you a kick in the balls instead. He turns yeah. the other cheek, and he seems like a nice kid. Don't you feel, he don't wants you feel to pretty bring awful you a now, right? You gift. say you want to kick the kid in the balls, and he says, I'll bring you a nice little gift basket. What do you, what you do know, you? just because he said he's going to bring me BYU stuff, I'll kick him in the balls twice. Oh, twice. Wow. What What in the world would make you think I would want anything from BYU? I, I, well, it's, it's just a proud nice, university. Nice offer, you know. I mean, BYU, it's a be- beautiful it's campus. I mean, I mean, Steve Young. I mean, yeah. Jim McMahon. You know, if he, if he wants to bring something, JJ tell him to bring DeLuigi. his checkbook. You listening, kid? Austin Bring Collie? your checkbook. Wow. Bring your checkbook. Harvey Unga? Tell you, man. Jeez, Ronnie. I Gary thought, Croton? I thought that would maybe. Okay. Lavelle Edwards? Oh, yeah. You could see me rolling around the studio with a BYU shirt. I'd wear Not it. Not going to happen. Are you kidding me? I totally I'll give would. it to you. Why Matt, if he, he sends it over here, yeah. and you can Ronnie, have it. Ronnie, if we bring yeah. the kid out here, are you going to be nice to him, or are you just going to ignore him and make us look all weird? I'll probably ignore him. In At the time, I was certain that I was in on the joke. And this story about my BYU song is one of my favorite stories to tell. And yet, I have to be honest, putting it together and re-listening to these clips was harder than I had anticipated it being. Hearing bad things about yourself isn't fun, even when you think you're in on the joke. Eventually, the story kind of petered out. The Disney trip never materialized. Then, sometime later, a time that from the clip sounds like it was years later, but I'm pretty sure it was just months later, I got another comment notification that I had been mentioned on the Petros and Money show again. At this time, BYU football had been doing really well. Apparently, I wasn't really following it. And they were playing my song again, this time in a little bit of a new light. You know what we forgot to do and we just have enough time to do it? What's that? Play the freaking BYU song! Oh. We forgot to do that yesterday! In celebration of the big win do you by have BYU. That Good I'm call. sorry. Here's the deal. Years ago, when this was like just a local show. Three years ago, I think. Three years ago, when the show just started, we found this kid on YouTube. It was like an application song. And he sang this song, this glowing song about how he loved BYU. Yes. And he played the piano. And he sang it. And it's been a musical day, and it's a musical show. And we got the Beatles remasters coming out. The commissioner of music dropped by. He's still taking emails from people right now. We got to play that because BYU just pulled that giant upset against Oklahoma. Not only do they knock out the incumbent Heisman winner for about a month of college football. Your thoughts, PMS at AM570radio.com. That kid, by the way, now going to Chico State. (laughs) Send Trapper to become the social chair of the Sigma Nu fraternity. That kid has a bone through his nose now, and he's a heroin (laughs) addict. No, no. So there is the reception that I had always anticipated for this song. Cheers. Oh, how things could change over time. Look, I want to get that damn kid on the air. I mean, I know that he's a total dork, and he's a goofy kid, but... 
That's hilarious. Balls as big as church bells, man. That's Every the most time... annoying song I've ever heard you know in my what? life. I want to How walk in traffic you? like two How minutes ago. How dare you? Listening back to it, I now remember. I, you get him on the show, Vassay. What, what Never. A, what a get polarizing song that was. Half our audience emailed and said, God, is that the greatest thing I've ever heard? The other half wanted to What's wrong us. with you people? Don't you recognize greatness when you hear it? Or if he ever comes in the studio, I'm going to kick him right square in the balls. Oh, I think I was still the butt of this joke. And in truth, I'm really glad the thing never materialized into a Disney trip. I had convinced myself that I was okay with the mocking. I had crafted a way that I could get something out of this whole thing. But as I've imagined in the years since what that trip would have been like had it happened, I shudder. The Disney-like role that I was playing for their show in these emails was like a darker side of Disney that I had not thought of at the time. Because like a Disney prince or princess, the role that I was playing wasn't real. And over the years, as I've deconstructed the Mormon part of my religion and faith, I've also inevitably deconstructed part of the Disney part of my religion and faith. Both sides are beautiful to me, and both sides represent a lot of what is in my heart. But both Disney and Mormonism have their own issues things that make them less pleasant than they appear to be. I think about that New Era article from 1980 and the vision that that ambassador had presented for what a good Mormon and a good Disney employee should be. I think it's great to be happy, but putting on a happy, smiling Disney face can also be a problem. Real life is more complex than that. Just before I started the Mosaic podcast, I ended the Pixar podcast, and in my last episode, which you can hear at thepixarpodcast.com, I explained how I had been disillusioned, that my hero at Disney and Pixar, John Lasseter, had been accused of sexual misconduct and was stepping down from his post, at least temporarily. In that episode, I tried to convey that my love of Disney and Pixar, and I'll add, like my love of Mormonism, is now messy, and that's okay. Now, a decade later, after this whole BYU song, Petros and Money experience, I'm happy to say that I was finally able to turn something I created into a free trip to Disneyland. But it wasn't that song, and it didn't require that I debase myself. Big Squadron will retrieve the power cells, while the rest of you concentrate on those robots. I was invited to Anaheim for a press event for the Pixar podcast last year. This is really great. I was able to go to the park with my wife, Katie. The trip was the magical experience I had hoped for all along. You can actually blast things? Thanks to my friends Addison, Davey, John, Lindy, Sam, and Emmy for their help with this story reading YouTube comments.
We're now going to switch gears a little bit for a conversation with a poet. Yes, thank you. My name is Rachel Hunt-Steenblick. I live in Jersey City, New Jersey, just across the river from Manhattan. I connected with Rachel Hunt-Steenblick via Skype to talk about her book of poetry, Mother's Milk, Poems in Search of Heavenly Mother. We talked a lot about Mormonism's controversial history with the divine feminine. One of Rachel's poems in the book is inspired by Moana, so we'll also get into a bit of a discussion about Disney movies. Rachel's book is now available on BCC Press. Okay, Rachel, it's great to talk to you. Um, And it's funny, as we were connecting on Skype, I was noticing, is Eliza one of your names as well? It's my middle name-ish. My middle name is Elizabeth, but I've... I really, really love the name Eliza, partly because of Eliza R. Snow, but also just because I think it's a pretty name. Yeah. I was going to ask if, if, yeah, because as we were getting started, I was thinking about some Mormon poets and you know, like yourself and yeah. like others. Um, who, who is Eliza R. Snow? So Eliza R. Snow has a distinction of being married to both of the first two Mormon prophets, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. She also served as the church's, like the secretary first for the very first female organization of the Mormon church called the Nauvoo Relief Society. And then later after the Relief Society was disbanded and started again 50 or so years later, she was the first general Relief Society president for the Mormon church. And But she herself... Um, she was a poet too, and Brigham Young, the prophet, gave her these three titles where he called her Zion's poetess, prophetess, and priestess. And so that's sort of this legacy that she had. But so several of her poems that she wrote when she was alive are still in our, our hymn book today that we sing, including a song called Oh My Father, that it's not the first reference to a heavenly mother or divine feminine in the Mormon world, but it's probably the best known that we have, and it's often what people think of when they think of Heavenly Mother. Why is that? What, is, what does that hymn have? What's, what, is, what, are the, how does, what are the words? And... So it shows up in t- the last two verses, and I may not get it exactly right, but she basically asked this question, and the heavens are parents single, know the thought makes reason stare, Truth is reason, truth eternal tells me there's the mother there. And then she continues it in the next verse, where sort of offering a prayer to both the father and the mother. She says, Mother, Mother, Father, may I meet you in your rural courts on high. So she offers a sort of invocation to both her Heavenly Father and her Heavenly Mother, saying she wants to meet them and be with them again. Is, is pretty significant in terms of popularizing the, the notion um, or, or having something um, that's very accessible for, for Mormons um, that is um, inclusive of, of Heavenly Mother in the theology, right? Absolutely. 
Yeah, that is. It's also in a document that was that came out in 1995 that was signed by the then prophet of the church, Gordon B. Hinckley, as well as his counselors and the 12 living apostles for the Mormon church called the Family Proclamation to the World, where it has a line about how we are all beloved spirit sons and daughters of heavenly parents who love us and we can become like them. So that that it's one more place, but Eliza is very specific of Heavenly Mother, that that language she gives it to us. And it's also a really beloved hymn. It's one of even some of the prophets. It was their favorite hymn. They remember singing it when they were young. And the music and words are both really lovely. So I think it's really cherished for a lot of members. Do you do you feel an affinity to Eliza R. Snow as a, as a Mormon um, woman who, you know, a poet? I do. I like almost all of the early Mormon female leaders, so so I like I like all of them. Emmeline B. Wells was an editor and a writer, and I feel really sh- close to her as well. But I definitely do feel a gratitude for Eliza as well as the closeness, partly because that topic of Heavenly Mother has been so dear to my scholarship and my own poems that I like carrying this forward and even just like being able to inherit that writing about Heavenly Mother, which is kind of sensitive, in the Mormon church, even though we have these different places where she's present, that writing her in poems is actually a really good place to write her because it's a place that we can just ask questions that we may not have concrete answers to and where we can think and explore. And somehow a poem or a hymn feels less threatening than an academic paper or a book that has a thesis and that type of structure that's not as accessible to every person. And so being able to think and ask questions in poems is so useful. Hmm. Tell me about um, Mother's Milk, your book, and how you got into writing poetry about Heavenly Mother. Okay, so it was actually by accident. I The book itself is called Mother's Milk, Poems in Search of Heavenly Mother. And I had worked for BYU right after I graduated. I was hired to be a full-time research assistant. The professor, A professor that I'd had in philosophy there, he had gotten a grant to research the Mormon concept of a heavenly mother through the Women's Research Institute. And so I spent that whole summer and four months working full-time, reading all of the things that had ever been said about heavenly mother by general church leaders, as well as things that had been written now. And, and that was in 2008. And then later, the work that I helped do went into a paper that BYU Studies published called A Mother There, and then the subtitle is something like a, a historical survey of teachings of Mother in Heaven. And one of the co-authors for that was my friend Martin Polito, who's done phenomenal work on Heavenly Mother. And like I, he felt this longing to have more and to feel closeness to Heavenly Mother. And he did the beautiful thing of creating an opportunity for there to be more. So he started an art and poetry contest calling for Mormon poets to create visual art pieces depicting heavenly mother are thinking about her and as well as Mormon poets to write new poems and even starting with that legacy of Eliza R. Snow and a man named W.W. Phelps who was close to the prophet Joseph Smith as well who who was the first one to to have a hymn actually two hymns about heavenly mother that came out at least 10 months before Eliza's Oh My Father and so Maureen had this call for entry for the these visual and written works about heavenly mother and I wasn't a visual artist, and I wasn't a poet, but I, I knew Mormon poets. So I wrote everyone I knew, asked them to submit something. And one friend named Elizabeth Penborough said, I can't wait to see what you submit. 
And at first I just thought, no, 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 I'm not submitting anything. I'm just trying to act as this this Socrates-type midwife calling others to bring forth these beautiful works. Um, But her words just stuck in my head. And I just realized, like, I'm not a poet, but I'm a writer, and poetry is writing. So I started asking her questions, like, what makes a poem a poem? What's a prose poem? How do you do line breaks? And she very gently and very patiently answered all of my questions. So I determined that I would write one poem. So I wrote one poem, and then that night I went to sleep. And I had a three-month-old baby at the time who would wake me up in the middle of the night to nurse. So I also remembered the dreams that I had during that time because I was always getting woken up. But that night when I slept, I dreamt that I was standing at a pulpit, kind of like you might see at a church building or you might see at an academic conference, just like the very standard wooden pulpits. And I was standing there and I was reading five Heavenly Mother poems that I had written. And so I woke up and I wrote them. And it was very similar to my writing experience with the first that they sort of felt given, that it just was so fast to write them. And I I woke up and then I looked at what I'd written because I think I had just tapped it in my phone and they actually were pretty good. So I submitted them as this, the five as, a, as just one longer poem. And I ended up getting honorable mention in that contest and $50, which was not a ton of money, but it was like encouraging enough to keep going, but also... I just couldn't stop writing them because ideas would come and I'd write them. And so I ended up writing over 300 tiny Heavenly Mother poems. And in the book, about 240 of them were published. So in the dream that you had, that you actually dreamt the words of the poem and then you just copied them down when you woke up? So I couldn't remember all of it. Like I like remembered pieces, like either themes or like more just like the feeling and the presence of speaking them and like. And that might have been one of the reasons why they did come quickly, like when I just tapped them out. Okay. I, w- I want to ask, um, what are the tensions at play with, with Mormons talking about Heavenly Mother or thinking, writing about Heavenly, praying to Heavenly Mother? What, what, what's the tension there? Yeah. So I personally feel like there shouldn't be any, but there is. And it's a really important question because of the history. Because at the same time that we have that poem, Turn Him by Eliza R. Snow, that's beloved, And that prophets, like Heber J. Grant, have said this is his favorite song. This is his favorite Mormon hymn. That at the same time we have that, we also had a series of excommunications in the 90s as well as into the 2000s of Mormon scholars, especially Mormon feminist scholars, being excommunicated. The feminist scholar who was one of the so-called September 6, six intellectuals who were excommunicated in September of 1993. Women have begun to identify with God the Mother. Some of us pray to a mother God because we believe she is talking to us. Lynn Canaval White Until God the Mother is accepted as the equal of God the Father, we as a church will remain bereft of the fullness of the Spirit of God. Zion, our mother, cannot return until we are ready to receive her. Margaret Merrill Toscano, Maxine Hanks, editor. And it's so hard to know exactly why any one person was excommunicated, but a lot of the feeling at the time and even since is because some of their work in writing about Heavenly Mother. And so so there is there has been fear, both from people my age and people 10 to 20 years older, because they saw these women and some men excommunicated. You have the unique experience of writing about Heavenly Mother both in poetry form and also in an academic sense. Yeah. And so I, I'm curious if you can tell me the the differences, um, specifically the difference in in 
the sort of sort of threat level that you felt or that you feel possibly um, with writing both of those genres, how dangerous it felt um, and how the danger compares with each other? Like danger that I think other people feel from it or danger like if I ever feel nervous that I could be disciplined or excommunicated. I guess I'm curious what if you felt any danger at all in either yeah. of those contexts and, and how they compared. Yeah, let me see. Um, so I've done a few papers on Heavenly Mother that I gave at conferences. And one of the first ones was at this school where my PhD coursework, where I finished it, but still in pause for the next steps. It's called Claremont Graduate University. It's outside of Los Angeles. And it has a Mormon studies program. And Joanna Brooks who does not teach there. She teaches in San Diego, but she was asked to keynote a conference that wasn't even just a Mormon conference. It was called Religions and Conversations. So there were a lot of faiths that were being represented with these academic papers. And the paper that I gave was about sort of this need for a divine feminine and how I believe that we have it even more strongly in Mormonism. But I said it in the context of both other faiths that have some longing express for divine feminine or that they try to find her in their theology, as well as just feminist theologians talking about things like that if God is male, then male is God, and reasons why women need a goddess. And so I sort of said it in this framework, but then said, I think that this need is universal, but Mormons feel it really strongly because we have theology that says that gender is eternal and also that God has a body. And so when other churches say Heavenly Father or use male pronouns for God, they still don't necessarily mean it in the way that Mormons mean it when we use these pronouns. And so like all these things together, and then we have scriptures in the Bible that life eternal is to know God. And Joseph Smith says that we can't know ourselves unless we know God. And so just thinking about what this means for me as a Mormon woman, that how can I know myself and how can I know God if I, God as mother if we have so little about her. So just putting all of these things together is sort of how I framed it. But I, I didn't feel I didn't feel any fear about that paper, but it's possibly because only that hundred people in the audience heard it. Um it still hasn't it still hasn't been published. I haven't tried to publish it, though I actually still want to, but so many things have changed. I'll have to update it a lot. Um but so it, it never was going to have a huge audience. But then in, in this way, like the poetry book has, it sold thousands of copies in its first six months. It's the bestseller for the small press it was published by. Um, but I still, I still don't think I feel a huge fear. I felt more fear for when I published a book called Mormon Feminism, Essential Writings with Oxford Press, just because there is another edited collection of feminist writings that that the woman the year after she published it was excommunicated. And so I think I felt more nervousness about that book, but I've I've been fine. And even my local leaders, they know the work that I do and they say nice things to me about it. My bishop and my stake president both are familiar-ish with the work that I do. Um, so I don't feel afraid by them, but I also mailed copies of my books to a few general church leaders. And both, I chose the ones that have used this type of inclusive God language, like either Heavenly Parents or Mother in Heaven or Heavenly Mother themselves, because I thought that they'd be more welcome and I wanted to share with them, but also partly from this idea of not wanting the work that I do to be secret and to be able to be the one to tell them myself, I am doing this and I am publishing this, that if by some chance they ever, ever were disciplined, I wouldn't want it to come from them first. Like I would want to say, 
this is what I have offered because I am proud of it and also I think it's important and so I want them to know that it's there. I don't want it a thing to be a secret. A motherless milk. I searched for my mother the way a baby roots for her mother's breast, head nuzzling from side to side, mouth open, ready to suckle, but I was still thirsty. Then my belly grew and my breasts grew and a ravenous little thing came out. I offer her my milk without money and without price. My husband offered it to her once while I sat beside them on a train. She pursed her lips against the false nipple and stared at me with sad eyes. I wondered then if Heavenly Mother walked into another room so we would take the bottle. I wondered then if we are weaned. Have you ever heard back from any general authorities? Yeah, so five of the six wrote me back, and some of them really quickly. A few of them told me that they wrote, read the whole book and even included lines from their favorite poems. And then some of them told me they'd started it and included lines from their favorite poems that they had read. And then others were more just like very polite thank you notes, like thank you for sending me this book. That was very thoughtful of you. Um, thank you for the work you do for the church and for the Lord, go forward in faith, something like that. So there was like definitely a spectrum, but they were all very kind. I wonder if you can help me unpack this idea because it's it's kind of half formed. But as we're talking, I'm thinking about how the notion of a divine feminine in Mormonism is simultaneously radical and also deeply um Orthodox isn't the right word, but like deeply faithful, deeply devotional. Yeah, it's both. It's both in a wild way. Like that. Can it, you? Yeah. Yes. Tell me more about that. Well, so for the deeply faithful part, it's like it just makes sense for a lot of other Mormon theology and the doctrine and covenants and that Mormon set of scriptures. We have parts about um, God, like like that the way that either Mormons become God or like is by this, we call it the sealing relationship or the sealing bond of marriage and celestial marriage. And so it just makes sense that if this is what we are being asked to do, to be faithful here, and that if things on earth are sort of patterned after heaven, that it makes sense that God themselves would be married. And we do have early general authorities saying that as much. And we also, in Genesis, a pretty well-known, both in Mormonism and not in Mormonism, scripture about being created in the image of God. There's a line about males and females being created in the image of God. And we know that it's the word Elohim, which is plural. And so sometimes it's interpreted to be God the Father and God the Son is creating these people. But some there are some Mormon prophets who have pointed out that scripture and said that it implies God the Father and God the Mother, that we're created that male and female are created in the image of God the Father and God the Mother together. And so it is so faithful, I think, and it's something, like, it just feels really beautiful. But I think because of those other things I mentioned of not having so much as well as sex communications, there's a fear that I don't, that I wish didn't have to be there at all and that I don't think is necessary or useful. Yeah. I want to ask you this. Um, it seems like in recent years, there's been more openness toward the notion of there's been more open references to heavenly parents, like in general conference talks and other things like that. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I definitely have noticed it. And people are also tracking it. Um, people that I know well and people that I don't know well are looking at the references over the years and over each of those two like conferences that happen each year. Mm. And even things like 
the more explicit references of Heavenly Mother and Mother in Heaven, there was a really long break where we didn't have them at all. And the last one was actually when a prophet named Gordon B. Hinckley, before he was the prophet of the church, but when he was an apostle, I think it was in 1991, he gave a talk called To the Daughters of God. My dear sisters, I appreciate all that has been said and also the music which has been given us in this meeting. And in it, he talked about how some women in the church were praying to Heavenly Mother and how it was well-meaning but misguided. I speak of those who advocate the offering of prayers to our Mother in Heaven. This practice started in private prayer and is beginning to spread to prayers offered in some of our meetings. It was Eliza R. Snow who wrote the words, Truth is reason, truth eternal, tells me I have a mother there. It has been said that the Prophet Joseph Smith made no correction to what Sister Snow had written. Therefore, we have a mother in heaven. Therefore, some assume that we may appropriately pray to her. Logic and reason would certainly suggest that if we have a father in heaven, we have a mother in heaven. That doctrine rests well with me. However, in light of the instruction we have received from the Lord Himself, I consider it inappropriate for anyone in the Church to pray to our Mother in Heaven. The Lord Jesus and that was Christ that reference saying that we shouldn't pray to her was the last explicit reference we had to Heavenly Mother until an apostle named Jeffrey R. Holland said Mother in Heaven just a few years ago. And to a Mother in Heaven, I say thank you. So it was almost like a 20-year break. Um, but the Heavenly Parents has become a lot more common, and I think part of it is from the 1995 document I've already mentioned, where that that's sort of the language that's familiar to us, and it's also the language that's it's not quite canonized yet, but a lot of people treat it like it's canonized. And so it's both familiar to the members to say Heavenly Parents as well as there's like something very real that they can point to and where they're getting it from. I want to come back to the family proclamation in a sec, because I have a question about that. But okay. let's go back to what you just said about um, Gordon B. Hinckley and the last reference. Yeah, um, it's, to, it's because, a very sad one for me. OK, yeah. Why? To, uh, unpack that a little bit. It's not, I mean, it seems like it, it's a it's almost like a like a scolding or something like that. Yeah. Um, the So his whole talk was framed because a young girl had written him a letter and essentially said, our boy is more important than girls because this is the sense that she got in the church. My name is Virginia. I'm 14 years old and a matter has been on, on my mind a lot lately. When someone such as Joseph Smith had a vision of the celestial kingdom, he only seemed to see men. If we are all Heavenly Father's children, then why do the scriptures say that men are to rule over women? I've prayed about it but felt that I needed your words. Are men more important than women? I may be foolish, but I honestly do not understand. And so, in many ways, he's trying to respond really lovingly to this girl and saying, like, you are as important as a boy. God loves his daughters. While it's true that in the verses which follow, man is spoken of, I am confident that the word is used in a generic sense to include both men and women. Are women included in those who shall partake of such glory? Most assuredly. But then he also mentions this. He frames the part about Heavenly Mother by mentioning the hymn by Eliza R. Snow and saying that Joseph Smith didn't correct this, and so it's it's real, it sits well with him, 
but then giving this kind of ending on a cautionary note. I consider it inappropriate for anyone in the church to pray to our mother in heaven. But it doesn't, from a personal level, it doesn't make sense to myself or a lot of others that I know, because our relationship with our earthly parents would be really strange to only talk to one of them. Like, even when I call home, sometimes I talk to them both at the same time, but there are sometimes that I just need to talk to one or the other. And so that, um, it's been hard for a lot of reasons, and partly because there's not a lot of dialogue or discourse to say, okay, if we're asked not to pray to her, then how can we connect with her? Or how how can we learn more about her even if this is a way that we have a relationship with God the Father? Even just his impulse that to kind of check with Joseph, you know, it's like, well, is this okay to talk about? Well, Joseph didn't have a problem with it. It's yeah. almost like a, a man's impulse to go back to verify with another man, you know? And I, I, I yeah. guess I want to ask, like, do you think, do you expect... Um, more, I guess, to use a Mormon term, light and knowledge, more more the- theological um, invention and or or like discovery to to come from Mormon men, or or do you do you think it needs to be prophetesses in some in some way? I mean, what do you sort of see that? This is a good question too. So I have several Mormon feminist friends who actually don't want church leaders to talk about her because they don't want the vision of Heavenly Mother passed to us from that big pulpit at General Conference to be the 1950s housewife that we have in the family proclamation. So they're very nervous that that is what would happen if, if I guess, like if certain church leaders were to be the ones to talk more about her. Um, or sort of that like Victorian-ish period traits of like women only being gentle, or only being these kind of softened things that don't describe a woman's whole humanity. Of, of all the, the normal feelings that we feel and all the normal things we're interested in. So, but Carolyn Pearson, who's one of the great Mormon poets herself and playwrights, has sort of talked about how we don't, even now we don't, and even like years when she's writing this, that we didn't need to wait for the men to hand her to us and that we as women have, have the right to get the revelation ourselves and to sort of learn from her who she is and that same idea of seeking her, that when we seek her, we can find her. And that when we turn our heart to her, she turns her heart to us. But yeah, I think I think that prophetesses and women seeking her themselves is really important, even though at the same time, I do hope that the institutional church, but I hope that they can take the lead from us in some ways, or that they, like, or the questions that they're willing to ask to learn about her can be those open, big questions to let her be what she is instead of a very narrow focus of what we need to fit into. I want to go back to my question about the family proclamation. Okay. Um, So that document that, as you said, outlines um, the idea that gender is eternal and the idea that we have a heavenly mother and a heavenly, well, heavenly parents, it says, and... Um, it it also outlines um, the ideas of gender roles, um, roles that are divinely given to men and women separately. Mm-hmm. And that that document um, has been used to form s- some of the political perspectives of the church. A- and um, it's been used as a, as a political tool in some ways to um, 
to contradict things like gay marriage um, and things like that, it, to, to, to basically to promote traditional marriage and traditional um, heteronormativity. Yeah. And I wonder if you see um, the theology of Heavenly Mother being co-opted in a way to um, to fight some of those political battles, like, for example, against gay marriage or or um, in the way that we're getting uh, more mentions about Heavenly Mother, but it's also done to create a, a more rigid heteronormative vision of eternity? Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought this up because it's so important to talk about, even though I have no good answers. And they're, one of the best essays on Heavenly Mother is by a woman named Linda Wilcox. I think it was, I can't remember if it was first published in Sunstone or Dialogue, but it was one of those. But it was about this, the Mormon concept of Heavenly Mother, but her, her essay sort of looked at how it was talked about at different times for different reasons. And some of the early church leaders, including Orson Pratt, I believe, would talk about Heavenly Mothers plural because of plural marriage or yeah, plural marriage and polygamy. Mm. So even very early on, like it was kind of used in a way to talk about or emphasize whatever else they were talking about. And so and her essay was written several years ago. So it was before the time that the church had become so political about the gay marriage question. But you could sort of see this, if she were to extend it to today, I'm sure that this is some of what she would say. And even the same thing that we talked about are how most of them say heavenly parents instead of heavenly mother and heavenly father could be because the polygamy question is still out there as well. And is, um, it's sort of tricky because we don't know. I think there's only one heavenly mother, but there's some people, including Orson Pratt and others, who think that there are more than one. But there, mm. but it does seem like when they talk about Heavenly Mother, if they talk about her now, is to emphasize that relationship between one man and one woman. And so they definitely talk about her very, like in some ways, very differently than the early ones. Aside from what I mentioned of like just the really beautiful ones of like placing her in conservation, placing her in whatever else, like in good ways that they were talking about. Um, yeah. So I do, I do feel really nervous about that, and then. From my own perspective, I don't really have good answers either because it's a doctrine that makes me feel like I do have a place in heaven and even on earth in the church. But I also know it can be hurtful to my gay brothers and sisters who feel like it makes them feel like there isn't room for them and that it's one more way that they don't belong or that they are not part of this like human warming family in their eternities. And that's really sorrowful and I wish that it wasn't that way. And there, like, Deseret Book also has a book, a children's book that has a painting of Heavenly Mother on the cover next to Heavenly Father. And some of those things, it is hard to see if that, like, if I hope that that's not the reason why they let it come out now, but I do feel nervous. Margaret Toscano has also been asked the same question about, about what it means about Heavenly Mother and mm. gay members of the church. And okay. she feels like one of, she believes very, very strongly in Heavenly Mother as being not even just like a good idea to think about or to consider, but as a real being with real power that really loves us. But she feels like one of the Divine Feminine's strongest character traits or strongest features is that she, like Christ, is sort of for the oppressed, that she defends the oppressed and the stranger, those on the margins. And so she feels like she can't, that Heavenly Mother can be a champion 
for those who are forgotten and those who are neglected and are pushed outward, that there isn't room for them, that she welcomes them and loves them. And, mm. and so I, I do really like thinking about it in that way as a loving mother who, mm. who speaks for them and cares about them too, even if she, yeah, yeah. So that's one more time thought about that. I know a girl from an island. Wonderful. This has been really great, Rachel. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, I, I want to transition to uh, if, for, if you could share some of your poems. Um, but I kind of want to ask about, so we've, we've talked a little bit about how poetry might be more accessible um, than maybe academia or other, other forms yeah. of communication. And this kind of, I want, this sort of seems like a transition to talking about Disney. Oh, okay. And... <laughs> I, was, I was hoping that this would happen, so I welcome this part of it. Okay, yeah. Well, and 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 Moana, because one of you, a couple of your poems are about Moana, and yes. so can you? I, I guess d- d- is there any? Do you see where I'm going with that idea yeah. of like accessibility? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that that's actually a great way to think about it, and even just story, like stories in general and narrative in general, is so powerful. And we as humans are sort of like we are story craving people that even mar- like mar- every marketer knows this, that this is a way to sell something is to tell a story. Um, and so trying to sell Heavenly Mother, essentially, like, yeah, having a story is a great way to do it. And the story of Moana itself, I think, is a perfect movie. And like there's so much about it. There are people. Yeah, I cry almost every time I watch it or even listen to it. And especially like with this topic, like realizing that Tefiti is this divine feminine goddess of creation whose heart has been stolen but needs to be restored. And that it's Moana, it's a daughter turning to her mothers, both her own mother who helps her pack when she leaves the island when her dad doesn't want her to, and her grandmother who's with her and guides her on this journey the whole way and believes in her. And helps her look for the goddess, helps her look for Tafiti. And watching it with my four-year-old daughter, Cora, she calls Tafiti the big Moana because she looks a lot like Moana. And she always, like just this morning when I walked Cora to preschool, I told her that I was going to get to have this chat with you. And I talked about what should I say or like, what do you think about this? And I, and I talked to Cora about Heavenly Mother as well. So I said, Cora, Tafiti is like, big Moana is like Heavenly Mother. And then, so she asked me why why Maui stole her heart, why he took it. And she asked me about that part of it as well as like focused on the green and the life-giving power that she had when she had it back. And so um, that was a conversation that me and my four-year-old daughter were able to have. So it was accessible to her and to be able to frame these things. And even, and I don't think that there were ever Mormon patriarchs or Mormon men who stole Heavenly Mother's heart. But there have been periods where, where it has felt like that. And there are periods where, where we haven't known that we can find her. And so even thinking about the grandmother being the one to turn Moana's heart to this godmother, this goddess of creation, and being, being the one to set her on that journey, and that it is a journey and that it's that seeking, but that even once she finds her, she doesn't look like herself. She doesn't look like Tefiti, the goddess of creation. She looks like Taka this volcano monster and but even in that state Moana could see her so after her seeking and searching to return this heart to bring back life she was able to recognize in Tefiti what was really there and so 
so for me, this has even resonated so much with my own search of looking for Heavenly Mother in places where, where it may not look like she should be, but even being able to see her where she is. So Moana saw her in a volcano monster and saw that that life power was still in her and could be in her. And so I was able to talk about this with my four-year-old daughter and to even think about all of the ways. Um, and so I think, I can't remember if I already said, but I started writing my poems like right after this daughter, Cora, was born. But but it was sort of a slow process, like where I wrote at least 200 that first year, but then there was a long break. And then I gave birth to my son. And then I also had a lot of postpartum anxiety and depression. So, but I, but I returned to writing and it sort of kept, like, it honestly kept me alive, like being able to think about this again and to write again. And, but then also the, the types of poems that I wrote changed because of these more harder experiences that I'd had, even about motherhood, like feeling more of those volcano feelings and like that despair and that depression and that darkness that didn't feel like life. Like I gave life and it felt like death and I thought that I was dying and I wanted to die. And so like seeing both parts of the mother, I think were really important for my book even of like being able to have all of these sides. But so like, but so this was a long process. So Moana came out not, it didn't, it wasn't there when I gave birth to my daughter, but I watched it with her after she was born because this book took so long. And so like so grateful. So it's the second to last poem in my book is the, the one about Moana. And I'll, I'll share it in just a second. But I had a tiny, tiny, well, all of them are tiny, but this one is like one word tiny that I didn't make it in the book, but still feels true. Um, so the, the poem that is in the book says what Moana taught me. And it says the mother's heart can be stolen, but it can also be restored. And then the tiny draft poem says what else Moana taught me and then everything. She taught me everything. I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you. But then the very last poem in my book is one of the first from the set that I dreamed. And it's the one that I end with, but it's called Kong Shells. And it's not an explicit Moana poem, but it, but it is to me. So Kong Shells, they're not the ocean. They're memories of the ocean. Birds, trees, olive oil, bread, moons. They're not the mother. They're memories of the mother. I hear her everywhere. So Mormons love Disney for, I think, a lot of good reasons. Like, I know that there are also critiques of Disney, like the the princess culture especially, um, that also actually goes along with what Mormonism does of kind of telling young girls and young women explicitly in lesson after lesson, like, this is the pinnacle of your life. This is the pinnacle of your happiness is finding this person to marry and this happily ever after that comes. And even, like... It's sort of the last, like one of the last milestones, like when you're eight, you're baptized, when these different things, and with young women who are not ordained to the priesthood, they don't have that step at 12 to be ordained to the Aaronic priesthood, and they don't have those next steps. And young men, hopefully, ha or like the church wants them to have the step of going on a mission. And more and more young women are making that step, 
but the very next step for Mormon women is to get married. And it's even an ordinance. It's one of the ways that we think we do get to the highest part of heaven. But it's also not a reality for every young woman because not everyone, it's just a, it's just not a fact that not everyone gets married and not everyone, even who gets married is able to have children, which is sort of the next like step. Um, so there's like, so there are hard parts about Disney too, because it definitely perpetuates those parts that do go along with Mormonism, but they're like the idea of wholesomeness or like, there's just something so positive about so much of Disney too. And there's even so many of the stories. And I think even more now, like with the Disney Pixar combinations of so much empathy and these like really deeply beautiful, heartfelt stories and the woman characters are getting better and better. Like that Elsa and Anna, the love that's important is the love between sisters and that like that's a different type of love than the romantic love being the focus of the story. And in that movie, it's the romantic love that isn't strong and isn't pure and can't save, but actually hurts. And so I've been really impressed with the trajectory that Disney has been going on, but I've loved Disney my whole life. And even on Sundays, like after church, when we weren't allowed to watch TV, we, my parents let us watch Disney movies. And there was one period where my cousin lived with my family and he was my age, but he was a boy. And every Sunday he would choose the little mermaid. So he'd watch the little mermaid every Sunday, like for over a year, probably. Um, and my husband like really loves jungle book and some of those types of Disney movies. But my dad or my mom, my mom grew up in Southern California. Her birthday is actually Disneyland's birthday, July 17th. And I think she was three or four the year that it opened. She was born in 1952, so I know it was close. She was a little kid. And her parents, they took her to Disneyland the first week that it was open for her birthday. And so just last year, my mom had like a big milestone birthday, and she helped all of my seven siblings, or six, I guess six of the seven siblings, get to Disneyland with our kids to celebrate her birthday at Disneyland on her birthday. And that that was so important to her, and that's like, and it was actually so nice for a lot of reasons because my mom, my mom's mom was just 99 and just passed away last Monday. And so that was the last time that so many of us got to see my grandma was on this trip that we came to, to go to Disneyland. So like, so it sort of has been like a tie, a place of like lots and lots of happy memories for me as a child that every time we'd visit my grandma, we'd go to this place and we went there for my mom and my dad, who I actually would think would be someone who wouldn't love Disneyland or Disney so much because he only reads like real books that are about real people and real things but even he loves Disney and I asked him about it once because I was sort of surprised and he said that he feels like it's the closest thing to the celestial kingdom and to heaven on earth like which felt like sort of cliche or like ultra cheesy but then he explained more when people come to Disneyland they like they expect to be happy and they expect like to be nice because those are the things they're hungry for so they go there and like and not every Disney experience is like magic, but they like they want to have those feelings. And so it gravitates people there who want to feel that way. So I, and I agree with my dad that there's something like really good there. Rachel, I think I think I've asked all my questions. Is there anything that we haven't talked about no, that you want to? No, every I think you asked such good questions. I'm very happy with what we talked Thank about. You. Moana, make way, make way. Moana, it's time you knew 
the village of Morton New is all you need. The dancers are practicing, they dance to an ancient song. Who needs a new song to show one's Finally today, we end the show with something that I think is the perfect way to wrap this episode up. An archival recording of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir performing at Disney World in 1989. We've got lots more Easter magic in store for everyone, including a visit from Mr. and Mrs. Easter Bunny and that irascible rabbit himself, Roger Rabbit. The choir was featured on the Walt Disney World Easter Parade, and they were introduced by Alan Thicke and Joan London. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Yeah, made up entirely of volunteers. This choir, under the direction of Gerald Otley, has won numerous national and international awards. And here then, performing at the America Gardens Showcase in front of the American Adventure at Epcot Center is the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. By the way, for folks who heard last week's episode, this particular song will be a little bit of an Easter egg for you. If you figure out what I'm talking about, please reach out on Twitter at Mosaic Podcast. Let me know what you discover. In this video, the choir is performing outdoors at Disney World. You can see Disney characters running around, interacting with the conductor and choir members during the performance. article published on March 19, 1989 in LDS Church News, staff writer Dorothy Stowe wrote, Disney characters with the Tabernacle Choir? Not so incongruous a combination as one might at first think. Choir commentator Spencer Kennard said the two organizations see eye to eye in their desire to promote the American family and the American dream. was so happy when I found this old video. According to some press materials from the church from 1989, this recording session with the choir led to four separate Disney television productions in 1989. The Walt Disney World Easter Parade, as well as the Children's Miracle Network Telethon, a 4th of July program, and the Disney Christmas Parade program. The choir also recorded that week's episode of Music and the Spoken Word at the Epcot Center. It was broadcast March 18th and 19th, 1989, and I looked forever for the audio of that program, or at least the script from the spoken word segment. If any listeners have any clues, any inside connections with the music in the spoken word program, and can get me a recording of that show or that script, please get in touch with me.
That's it for this week's episode of Mosaic. Mosaic is created by me, Derek Clements. Katie Kyle is the show's advisor. I'm going to take one week off before the next episode. The reporting required for that show is a little more in-depth than the previous episodes have been. But I think the episode will be worth the wait. Find and share all the episodes of Mosaic at mosaicpodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. You can leave a review for Mosaic in the iTunes store. That helps the show find new listeners. And if you leave a mean comment in that review, your words might be spoken by voice actors in a future story. But if you really want to support the show, please become a contributor on Patreon. I've got a lot of cool Patreon-only materials coming in the feed soon, including both videos of the BYU song used in today's episode, and an expanded version of my conversation with Rachel Hunt Steenblum. You can also make a one-time donation to the show. Please go to mosaicpodcast.com support to do all of that. In addition to following Mosaic Podcast on Twitter, you can also find me there. I am at Derrific. It's playing words there. Dare. I get it. Yeah. Derek. Derrific. Thanks for listening to Mosaic. I'll be back in two weeks. Can I say something even crazier? Yes.